0: This week on the Back Table podcast.
1: My goal with them is yes, to kind of like I mentioned before yes, to treat their current symptoms, but Really, I'm trying to make a nice wide open cavity that they could get topical treatment in there so that they don't have to be, you know, dependent on taking a course of prednisone every time they're having like a really bad flare. So even if, you know, the polyps are maybe not all of the sinuses are fully involved, meaning that they might not all have mucosal thickening. We know the polyps mostly come from the ethmoid. So I do think to make a nice big open cavity. You you do need to open all of the sinuses.
2: Welcome to the Back Table ENT Podcast, where we provide a platform to dive into and discuss all sorts of topics related to otolaryngology. We we hope to bring you relevant uh, and timely information that you find can help you in your daily life and in your practice. Uh, we got a great show for you today. I'm your host. My name is Ashley Agan, and I am joined, as always, by the lovely Gopi Shah. Gopi, how are you today?
0: I'm doing good, Ash. I'm feeling a little nosy today. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm talking <laughs> about nasal polyps today, so I thought I'd throw it in. I'm super <laughs> excited. We have an awesome guest today. We have Dr. Patricia Loftus. I met Patricia when I was a resident, she was a medical student at Jeff, so it's I'm even more excited to have her here today. So Dr. Patricia Loftus is an assistant professor in rhinology and skull-based surgery in the Department of Otolaryngology at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. She obtained her medical degree from Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. She completed her residency in otolaryngology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York. She completed her fellowship training in rhinology and endoscopic skull-based surgery at Emory University Hospital, Atlanta, Georgia. She's here to talk to us today about chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. So welcome to the show, Patricia.
1: Hello, thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. (laughs)
0: You wanna just first tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice?
1: Yeah, so um, I grew up actually in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, we were put on the map a few years ago when the office was uh, based in Scranton. So uh, (laughs) that's kind of how uh, people know where I'm from. More recently, Scranton is in the news because of Joe Biden. He lived there until he was 10 years old. So we have kind of two reasons that people know about Scranton these days. So I I grew up there, um, high school and college there. I'm the oldest of five kids. Decided to go to medical school. I think that like many of us, we just decided what's going to be really hard. Uh, what's going to you know take the longest? What's going to put us most in debt? No, I'm just kidding. I uh, I just felt like from the beginning I um I was just drawn to medicine, and I just kind of knew I wanted to be a doctor. And it helped the my four younger siblings after seeing what I went through. They all decided that they were not going to do that, so I helped that out too. <laughs> but yes, like Gopi said, I did my medical training um at Jefferson in Philadelphia. I will say that I it's so nice to reconnect with her. I've always remembered you Gopi. you were always so kind to the medical students like for real you have no idea how it changes the environment and what you might want to go into when you when you have like Residents being kind to you, and I've well, always remembered having that.
0: kind medical students that are supportive when you're the PGY2 in service. <laughs> and it's very helpful, right back as well. So,
1: well, I, I, I'm just so appreciative of how you treated me and all the other medical students. Um, and then, yep, Mont- Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx for residency, which was really great training. And then I decided to do an extra year to um do a fellowship in rhinology and skull base. So I spent a year in Atlanta at Emory, and then my first job out of um, residency was at UCSF where I am now. I'm actually starting, I think I've been there for now four years, a little over four years, which is crazy because I am used to using the excuse, oh, I'm just out of training. Can I ask you a question? And now I feel like I can't always do that. I mean, I can always ask questions, but I feel like I can't say I'm just out of training anymore. But yeah, so my practice involves mostly, you know, I am mostly rhinology. I do mostly inflammatory stuff. I do a little bit of skull base. There are um, two other skull base surgeons on faculty that do the bulk of it, but I, I do get to do a little bit, which is great. I work half of the time at our county hospital, um, Zuckerberg, um, San Francisco General Hospital, where I do all the sinus stuff that there and get to do a little bit of general stuff too which is nice and I actually recently just um, took and passed the written and oral boards for allergy so thank you very much we're hoping to maybe start up a little bit of an allergy practice at Zuckerberg hospital we're working on that so that's not part of my practice yet but I hope that it will be in the future so right now I am doing mostly um, sinus inflammatory stuff a little bit of skull base um, and a little bit of general That's
0: awesome.
2: Very cool. And so, we want to talk to you today. You know, we're we're particularly interested in talking about nasal polyps. So, how how does that patient present to your practice? I I assume you see plenty of polyps every day. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely a lot of polyps that you know chronic. Sinusitis itself is um, pretty common. We quote around, you know, 10 to 15 percent or around 12 percent of the population and about 20 percent of people with um, sinusitis have nasal polyps. So it is a, a good chunk of people. And um, I I would say that, you know, a lot of the chief complaints coming into my clinic are um, nasal obstruction or nasal congestion. Right. And usually that's just what it says. And then you have to kind of figure out, OK, so is this allergies? Is it turbinate hypertrophy? Is it um, sinusitis without polyps? sinusitis with polyps. So I think that it, it's, you can't always tell just from the history because you know, these patients will mostly complain of congestion and, you know, facial pressure drainage. And you can see that in other diseases. I will say that it probably is more common or is more common for um, people with polyps to have um, smell loss as, or decrease in smell as one of their kind of major presenting symptoms, which, you know, can happen in allergies, but definitely isn't as common. So when people describe smell loss in conjunction with some of these other symptoms. That's what kind of gets me thinking. Um, you know, we know that they're with a the history of asthma, I will sometimes also, of course, allergic rhinitis can be associated with asthma as well. But if patients have a history of asthma, I'll definitely, you know, ask about and said allergy, things like that. And we'll get into that a little bit more. And then there are, I will say there are some people who, Typically, they'll present saying that they had a bad URI and then kind of never got better. And um, that's, that's an interesting thing. We actually tend to see that in patients with AE end up having AERD, which is aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease, that I think that kind of their polyps and inflammation had been growing and you know maybe they were getting used to it. And then they kind of had a, an inciting event and they sort of just started noticing it and it kind of got worse since then. So that w- definitely makes me think that I, I might be looking for polyps. Sometimes people will actually say, obviously, they see something kind of getting bigger and smaller in their nose. And uh, it, it's variable whether these patients respond onto topical steroids because a lot of them will have already tried Flonase, but it's kind of variable whether it helps. So I don't think that necessarily helps me that much. And also that can improve allergic rhinitis or turbinate hypertrophy. So, um, you know, those are the symptoms I'm looking for with polyps and then really your physical exam with your nasal endoscopy and is kind of going to be gold standard. Even on CAT scan, you can think that you might see polyps, but it can sometimes be hard. As you know, it might, you know, it's just kind of grayed out. So that exam is really what is going to be helpful for that.
0: For your primary patients, never had a surgery, do you usually start do a flex or do you usually just do rigids? You know, I do
1: rigids. I'm usually the, you know, the the symptoms that people are presenting with are really pretty much all sinonasal. And of course there will be, oh you know, I have a cough from post nasal drip. So if if that seems a little bit different than, oh, maybe just related to their drainage. I might take a look at their larynx, but most of the time I'm doing a rigid because one, if there's something to culture, it's easier to do that with a rigid. If there's potentially something to biopsy, it's easier to do with a rigid. And um, sometimes, you know, the 30 is kind of nice to try to get in there into the the middle meatus. You can do that with the flex as well. But I think that the rigid, it tends to be nice for the, the nasal cavity. It's just kind of a straight shot. The flex, you might, if you're moving a around, you might sometimes kind of lose your view where you are. So I tend to like the rigid, but specifically for a potential culture biopsy.
2: How often are you culturing? Anytime you see pus or in patients who are particularly refractory? Yeah, good question. So
1: when I, any person that comes into my clinic and I see something that Is not just their typical doesn't look like the just typical like nasal secretions right because we kind of I think that that kind that maybe takes a little bit of experience knowing what should be cultured and what shouldn't but you know you you know you guys know that typical just like thick mucus that people have from congestion from polyps like that stuff is not helpful to culture because that's just gonna you know grow a lot of stuff or or grow something that we don't really know what to do with it's just basically their baseline and we're not just constantly giving them antibiotics. But if they come in, come kind of complaining of like an acute worsening, that's when the mucus might be a little bit different. Or if, you know, they're you can kind of tell that it's purulent rather than um, just being the typical like thick secretions. That's something that I'll culture. And um, it does like it, it will guide me. You know, there's I think there's a lot of papers out there kind of saying, like, does it matter to like if we culture these people, like should we be doing it? Is it just kind of a waste? But I do think that it will guide me if I'm planning to treat these people pre-op before or, you know, do medical management prior to offering surgical management. And definitely if they have exacerbations, like in the post-operative period, I think it's helpful to have a culture to kind of go back to, which is the reason that I would also culture in the operating room. It's more that, you know, if they are having a tough like healing process post-operatively, I kind of have that culture to go back to.
2: What are the, what are the common bugs that you're seeing? Is there a theme?
1: Yeah, so I think for, you know, I, I tend to see more of the chronic patients, as you know. So with, with acute, we always know that it's kind of the same thing as when you have a middle ear infection, like the staph and the strep. But when Patients tend to be chronic. There's kind of more of like a mixed um, group of bugs in there, anaerobic, aerobic. And these are the patients that might have, you know, more staff. They might have more pseudomonas. So that's that again. That's kind of why a culture is is sort of nice with these patients. But I do, in the guidelines, you know, say that I do tend to treat if I don't have a culture. I I like to use augmentin. I think that it uh, does get the bugs that are likely to be the ones there obviously if it ends up being staff or something like that then that it wouldn't be helpful but that would be um, you know if they fail augment and then that it might be a reason to look for something else but usually that's kind of the first go-to that tends to treat most of the bugs that are going to be in the sinuses
0: what's your alternative for penicillin allergy patients so doxy is a good one. I would say people,
1: people respond pretty well to doxy. You know, we, there's a lot of um, people ask about macrolides a lot too, because we know that they sort of have an anti-inflammatory component as well. So there, that's definitely not wrong. Where I tend to use the macrolides would be more in a neutrophilic type sinusitis so we'll probably get into this a little bit but you know polyps tend to be more uh, well are usually eosinophilic eosinophilia driven but are c- those sinuses that are kind of chronically infected you know odontogenic infections are just you know crs without polyps that tend to be kind of refractory infectious looking cavities they tend to be the ones that are neutrophilic and that we, we think that um macrolides kind of work best on. So sort of what people will do is like a low dose of a macrolide for about three months, see if they can get things under control with that. That does tend to be more in the post-operative period, because if you fail all all the medical management, including antibiotics, prior to that, we do usually offer surgery. And then if they're still having issues with their cavity healing, that's when you might do a macrolide. For me, at least, there's different ways that people do it. But so so that's kind of, uh, that's a question a lot of people have about macrolides and that's sort of how I use them.
2: And you said three months? Three yeah. Three months of a macrolide? Wow.
1: Yeah. yeah, I'll actually do about 12 weeks, um, 8 to 12 weeks and kind of see if the cavity sort of calms down after that. I mean, there are some people that, I mean, this is very, not super common, but there are some people that do end up on an antibiotic for a very long time just to kind of keep the inflammation under control. It's obviously not something that we... do easily. uh, But there are people with really tough cavities that that might be on an antibiotic for a while.
2: Do they end up having a lot of GI upset from that, like disrupting the back, you know, the microbiome of the GI tract? Or do you put them on a probiotic or...
1: Yeah. The, and that's the worry for sure. I always obviously talk to the patients about that. You know, if this is going to start causing any issues, just call me, let me know. We could, yeah, we could try a probiotic. We can, you know, put you on something. And if you're really not tolerating it, we might just have to do something else. It's definitely not something that I do right off the bat with the kind of the long-term antibiotics. You you definitely Try the best that you can to get them under control with topical medication. You know, that's the reason, the main reason that we do sinus surgery in the first place. Obviously, we want to relieve the obstruction and clean out all the mucus and everything like that. But really, the main reason that we do it is to have this nice open cavity that you can get topical medication in there. So the goal is to get them under control with saline or, you know, steroid rinses. And really, long term antibiotics are kind of just if you're looking for something else
2: yeah so back backing up to when these patients walk into your clinic and you're seeing them for the first time and you look mm-hmm. in there and you're like oh you've got polyps what yeah. what happens after that i you know if they, i assume if they haven't had a scan they probably get a CT scan and you probably send them out on some topical therapies, maybe prednisone. What what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So like you said, we always try medical management first. And for CRS with nasal polyps, um, this is this is a disease where prednisone is actually recommended. You no, know, we uh are we have guidelines that a lot of a lot of them say option to do this, option to do that. But you know, steroid prednisone in a polyp patient, which is eosinophilia driven, you know, they really do tend to be steroid responders. So this is something that's recommended if the patient doesn't have have any contraindications to it. So in a a patient who is, you know, treatment naive, I definitely, and they can take prednisone, I will do a steroid taper. Mine, there's there's no, like many things in ENT, there's no uh, specific taper that you should do. What I like to do is 40 milligrams for four days, 30 for four days, 20 for four days, 10 for four. Day. so it's forty pills a sixteen day taper, and the forty came about. I would say that most rhinologists tend to not go higher than forty. From what I read, there was a someone looked into it, like about the dosage that you hit that kind of had side effects that might have created lawsuits or something along that line. And it's we they kind of found that forty was okay to go up to. So that's what most of us do. So you'll, we'll I'll do that. I will definitely do a, have them do saltwater rinses. We know there's a recommendation for that. And we know there's a recommendation for intranasal corticosteroids. So, you know, our data that we have, when I say intranasal corticosteroids, it is what's FDA approved as flonase or the, the sprays. But as you guys know, we do tend to do a lot of adding our steroid to rinses. And uh, so I, I use Budesonide for that. It is off-label technically. So, you know, there's not there's not robust data. And I think mostly because it is off-label, but we know that it does work. So what's nice about adding the Budesonide is that with the... The rinse, you know, it's higher volume, can kind of get into the nose and sinus cavities a little bit better. I think preoperatively, the budesonide and the rinse doesn't matter as much just because you don't have that open space yet. I think it's very important postoperatively. So, you know, my patient that hasn't had surgery yet, steroid taper, saline rinse, nasal, intranasal corticosteroid, whether it's flonase or whether you add it into the rinse. And then I actually, I don't, I won't do a CAT scan right away unless there is something concerning to me, just because there are some people who respond really well to that and they come back in their polyps are under control and are staying under control on topical Uh, steroids. And if they feel good, we might just have them come back in a couple months and see if the polyps have come back or if they're still doing okay on the topical uh, medication. If they, you know, quickly come back, that's when we'll just potentially discuss surgery. And that's when I would get a CAT scan.
0: What do you do for your, do you do any steroids ever for your patients that are diabetics? Do you get in touch with endocrine or are those patients, that's just not an option. And you end up just, having to consider surgery or, you know, are you more, do you talk to the endocrinologist about budesonide rinses? Can those patients take that? Do you have patients like that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that what I really like about having an EMR now is that it's really easy to kind of send a quick message to these patients, PCPs and anybody who, you know, has diabetes, I'll usually check if they're like a one C isn't too bad. They seem pretty controlled. Usually these, these patients are actually fine to take, to take prednisone, but I'll always send a message to the PCP and just kind of get their go ahead and ask them, you know, if they're, maybe you might want to check in with this patient to get some, you know, check to see how they're doing in a week or two. And I I pretty much always get the go ahead from the PCPs when the patients are pretty controlled controlled. I think it's the patients that are not controlled, you know, those patients, you kind of know the patients that you're just like, "Eh, it's not a good idea to give you steroid, you know? So there are patients that can take prednisone. I will still give them topical because we do know that, you know, there's not great systemic absorption and we don't really have anything to show that, you know, there's, bad systemic side effects from doing the topical. So patients with diabetes who can't take oral, I will definitely give them topical. But, um, you know, they they potentially might be someone who doesn't respond that well and would be, you know, be going to surgery a little bit sooner.
0: And then in terms of imaging, you know, we think CAT scan, we think fine cut because we think image guidance usually with polyps. Is there ever an indication for contrast in your CT or an MRI? You know, for a straight up polyp patient, no. I would say
1: the only time I w- would get contrast in a CT is if I'm worried about a complication like an abscess or something like that. Um, you know, and if they're if they're having vision changes, I'm worried about a and subperiosteal abscess or something like that. MRI, also no. I um I think. If there is concern that it's not just a not just polyps, if we think it might be a tumor or something like that, MRI is definitely indicated. And, you know, there are people if it's sometimes it's you can be unsure if it's polyp versus inverted papilloma. So sometimes obviously a biopsy in clinic would tell you the difference between that. And some people might get an MRI for inverted papilloma. I think you don't have to. But so I would say MRI would mostly be just if you're if there's a mass there. Another reason actually might be allergic fungal. You know, allergic fungal has those typical imaging characteristics where it could actually be pretty worrisome. You know, it's like the pushing borders that kind of widen and almost like it kind of like a mucosal type look that uh, on a a CT, you might see thinning or even absence of some of the bone, like on the skull base or the orbit. So in those cases, it might, you know, potentially be helpful to just get an MRI, make sure you're not missing anything. Now, um missing anything, I would mean like with the skull base, is there, you know, an seal. but, you know, we know with these patients that they don't actually, you know, ev- really get CSF leaks or anything like that, because it's not a invasive process with allergic fungal sinusitis, right? It's a, it's a kind of locally quote unquote destructive. So it will push against the skull base in the orbit, but um it doesn't tend to um invade. So what you would just see on the MRI, which is interesting, is you you see that kind of void, which I think is really cool. That's why I like getting the MRIs to kind of go over them with the residents and stuff. Because yeah. we know that a fungus has like a lot of water content. So it will those those sinuses full of fungus will kind of just be completely black, which is yes. which is pretty cool.
0: Which So this is just on a side, we had a, so I do PEDS, so I see mostly kids, but we had a child that came into the ER with a little proptosis, nasal obstruction, and the, you know, they got a CT with contrast because they were concerned in the ER for an acute, an acute, you know, sinusitis with some sort of oral oral abscess. They also got an MR. And again, when you're not familiar, it gets very Mm -hmm. confusing because Mm -hmm. like you said, on MR, everything drops out. And I agree with the AFS or... It usually expands how it thins it and you'll Mm -hmm. see CTs where sometimes, you know, maybe it's just the, you know, the planum or something. You might have thin areas and I'll usually talk, you know, about, discussed it with my adult rhinology partners. Um, They'll they'll always be like, you'll be fine and you go in and, you know, it's thin, but things are pretty intact.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I actually, I miss these cases a lot because, you know, you probably definitely see it in Texas. I saw it a ton in Atlanta, but we don't see it really much in um, San Francisco. It, you know, it, it tends to be, you know, with the with the climate that uh, you have in like the Mississippi Basin area. So it was very common in fellowship, but I don't see it as much now. But it can be concerning if somebody were to get a CT that wasn't familiar with the disease and they would probably get an MRI based on the CT findings so that's why you might see an MRI, but it is interesting. And, you know, with your, it, that kind of also goes along with your question of like what my kind of thoughts are when I do diagnose a, a polyp patient, because you also sort of have to think about whether they fit into one of these other polyp categories that tend to be a little bit harder to treat, basically, I guess I'll say. So when I, what the w- things that I'm thinking of are allergic fungal and um, AERD. So if there's um, a patient with polyps, you definitely want to ask about asthma. You want to ask about aspirin or NSAID sensitivity. Now, of course, they, they don't always have all three of those. They don't, they don't all develop, you know, the polyps, asthma, and aspirin sensitivity. They don't develop at the same time. So we actually think that AERD is probably kind of grossly underdiagnosed because we may be seeing the patients earlier on and they haven't started to develop the aspirin or NSAID allergy yet. But it's important to to kind of have that in your mind, because these are the patients um, that are difficult to treat. They, uh, the polyps come back pretty quickly. You, you know, these are the, actually the patients that I might consider doing something like a draft three up front. So it does actually potentially change management. And um, same thing with AFS. So if you know that you have an AFS patient, you know that you really have to work to get all of that mucin out of there, or that's just, everything's just going to come back. And it, they're also, you know, if they're, they also tend to. Be recurrent and you definitely want to treat them with post-op steroids, prednisone. We we know that um that's helpful to do in AFS patients, which is not something that is like technically recommended. You you know it's an option for other types of polyps, but for AFS we definitely recommend it. And then you know they're the patients that if they're recurrent, you might consider immunotherapy to the fungal um allergens that they are allergic to. So kind of going along with your question, I would say most of the uh, nasal polyps I see are your typical eosinophilic CRS, but there are these subtypes that are very important to know whether you're dealing with those or not.
2: So when you're working up these patients in, in the beginning, you know, we talked about imaging. Are there other studies or labs or testing that you do, like allergy testing, you know, testing for for CF or primary ciliary dyskinesia?
1: Yeah, great question. So I think in terms of CF, definitely if you're seeing, and Gopi, you know this, if you're seeing a younger patient with polyps, we know that your typical eosinophilic CRS polyps kind of tend to come into clinic in third, fourth, fifth decade of life. So young kids, there's usually a reason for that. So either AFS, especially if it's unilateral, or CF if it's bilateral. So if I'm seeing a child or a young person with polyps, definitely you want to think about CF. And if you're seeing any type of patient, a, a child Definitely. But any patient who comes in with also a history of recurrent um, pneumonia, you know, bronchiectasis, uh, you know, they might be the patients that, oh, I have I've had five tubes in my life because I get a lot of ear infections. They're the patients that where my mind goes, okay, And a lot of the times they might already have, you know, a diagnosis, but they're the ones that I might say, you know, we should. Um, have you see immunology. If you haven't yet, you know, because there's the, besides for PCD is is definitely a thing. It's it's pretty rare. So what would be kind of more common is that these people might have like common variable immunodeficiency. They might have like an IgG or IgA type deficiency. So if pa- patients come in with that history, I definitely think they deserve an immunology workup. I wouldn't necessarily send off all those labs myself just because we have such a great allergy and immunology department, but you can do that. You can definitely do that if you're, you know, kind of prepared to be able to deal with the results. Another Another thing that sort of would make me think, and I actually have a patient like this coming up, that her, on her CT scan, her sinuses were pretty underdeveloped. So we know that in um, obviously in CF, we, they tend to be the pa- pa- patients that have kind of a genesis of the frontal sinuses because they have this like arrest in their um, sinus development due to the, you know, chronic infection, but also the cilia not working correctly. So I have a patient who ha- kind of has that. She's in her 20s. She has hypoplastic uh, maxillary sinuses. It's not a silent sinus picture. It's, it is kind of just like under development of the sinuses. And she does say, oh yeah, I've gotten ear infections and that kind of thing. So I'm actually going to um, plan to do a brush to send off for PCD when I am in the OR. They, they use electron microscopy. So you doubt, you do have to kind of talked to PATH before to say, I'm doing this kind of specific test that, uh, you know, they don't do super often, but that's definitely a patient. So there are maybe some CTs findings like that, that would alert you to say, I should work up CF or I should work up um, PCD. And then also the immunology part of it. And then the other, the other thing that I had wanted to mention is allergy. So you asked about allergy and that's a great question. The we always, when people, people say like, why do I have polyps? You know, I always say, well, allergy is one of the reasons, but actually our, our, our data shows that it's a, uh, it's definitely not like a, huge factor in uh, polyps. Like there's a lot of patients with polyps that do not have allergies, right? So it's it's definitely not a one-to-one thing. So when do I have them be tested for allergies? There is actually an entity that is kind of becoming a little bit more believed in, I guess I will say recently, something called central compartment atopic disease. Now this is a, if you've probably seen those CTs where the disease looks, centralized, right? So you have these polypoid middle turbinates, you have kind of like polypoid posterior septum, and the disease tends to move centrally to laterally. So you might have kind of sparing of the ethmoids around the orbit and you might have sparing of the maxillaries in the beginning of the process and kind of everything centralized. And I'm sure like as I met, as I talk about it, you say, oh, I, I remember seeing CAT scans like that before. And we actually do think that those types of presentations are related to allergies. And there has been um, definitely some work done with that where patients with those type of scans are, are tested for allergies. And they're pretty much like all pretty much all hundred percent positive for allergic rhinitis. So that might be a patient that I would say, it doesn't mean that we that allergy treatment will cure it without surgery. So they probably will still need surgery. But they're the patients that I definitely have see allergy.
0: So just two points. I agree. Again, I see kids. So this whole workup is part of the repertoire and, um, and being thoughtful about who gets what. I feel like a lot of you know every once in a while. I'll have a young kid who's like four with a polyp. Majority of the time, they already have that diagnosis of CF, but every once in a while, you might still be that first person. I think PCD is something that's not as commonly diagnosed. We don't screen for it, for example, at birth. And that that can be a tough diagnosis to get. The brush biopsy, like you said, I'd let Path know there is a nitric oxide screener that some of the centers have that's supposed to be able to be another way to screen for it. And there is obviously genetic testing. And I agree for the immune workup. A lot of people do, will get their own blood work. In a kid, my goal is to stick them once. So I'll usually send them to immunology so that they can not just check the immunoglobulins and the titers for, you know, pneumococcal titers, et cetera, but they can check for anything else that they might be interested in. One question for you in terms of allergy, first question, do you have a preference in terms of RAST and skin? And then second question, you're seeing adults. So sometimes they'll say, oh, well, you know, I had allergy testing in my 20s and now they're, you know, 40. What, how, in terms of positive results or new allergens, or do you ever outgrow allergies? Like what's the time frame between your allergy testing, I guess?
1: Yeah, that that's a good question. Because I, I do get that question a lot from patients like, oh yeah, I had allergy testing a couple, like a couple decades ago, should I get retested? So the answer is yes, you can develop new allergens, as you know, and especially if they've kind of moved to a new place. I definitely see a lot of people in the Bay Area that have moved from elsewhere and they may have had their allergy testing elsewhere. So definitely then I will, I will tell them to do it. But if they haven't had any recent moves and it's been a while and they feel like they can kind of give a history that when I'm, when it's this certain season, I feel like my symptoms come on, even though I was told maybe I wasn't allergic to this stuff in the past. I don't think that it's the wrong thing to have them retested. And in terms of, you know, skin prick testing versus RAST, definitely w- we do know that the skin prick is a little more sensitive. So that's, uh, that's why we kind of offer that first line. RAST though is it's It's also, you know, a great option for people with, you know, dermatographism, or if they can't come off certain medications that they need, like, so you need, obviously, you know, you need to be off antihistamines, you need to be off tricyclics, you need to be off other medications like that. And some people actually can't come off some of those things. So that's a great option for them. It's a great option for people with like a history of anaphylaxis that you don't want to be, you don't, you know, you don't want to maybe skin prick them, pregnant women, that kind of thing. So it's definitely a good option, but we, We do tend to do the skin prick first just because of the the sensitivity of it and because when you if you kind of mix it with some other types of testing you can actually figure out the dilution to actually start uh their treatment with so that's uh, that's a nice thing about it rest you know you can't really tell it's kind of just you know you you can there is an algorithm that you can use depending on like how positive rest was to kind of decide where you're going to start with the the dilutions. But with the skin prick testing, there is some things you can do to kind of decide exactly where you're going to start if you were planning to do immunotherapy. So that's a nice part of it too.
2: So once these patients, let's say they, they do end up needing surgery, are most patients with nasal polyps, are you doing a full house fest? Do you think, you know, are you a fan of big antrostomies or is a balloon dilation enough to ventilate the sinuses or tell us what you think about that?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, I, I don't do a ton of balloons. I do think that there is a place for balloons and I know, you know, there is data out there that they work in the right type of situation. I don't think that, polyps is one of those situations though just because you know as you know you need to get in there and remove you know just dilating the sinus is not going to help if there's still a lot of edema and polyp in the way if there's a lot of mucus in the sinuses that needs to be cleaned out you know obviously like an AFS patient would not be a candidate for a balloon so I don't do balloons uh, commonly but definitely not for polyps so my my goal with them is Yes, to kind of like I mentioned before, yes, to treat their current symptoms, but Really, I'm trying to make a nice wide open cavity that they could get topical treatment in there so that they don't have to be, you know, dependent on taking a course of prednisone every time they're having like a really bad flare. So, even if, you know, the polyps are maybe not all of the sinuses are fully involved, meaning that they might not all have mucosal thickening, we know the polyps mostly come from the ethmoid. So, I do think to make a nice big open cavity, you'd you do need to open all of the sinuses. So a polyp patient is someone that I would do a full house fast, you know, septum if needed. It, the, my residents ask me a lot about doing turb reductions, and I, I think what's interesting is that, like we are saying, most of these patients, it's actually not allergies. So if their inferior turbinates are swollen, it sort of just is going along with the whole like chronic rhinosinusitis thing. And as the inflammation in the sinuses go down, the inflammation in the inferior terminus tends to go down too. So I don't usually do um, inferior turbinate reduction at the same time, but I will just start the full house fest. I do like big antrostomies. There's not You know, I I, the data out there shows that you don't have to make these huge antrostomies, but I just kind of like them because they look nice. And um, I do think that, you know, medication gets in there well. And and, you you know, you have to think about when you're doing the surgery, how how can I make this easier for me in the office when I'm debriding them or when I'm monitoring? So I kind of just think like big holes make it easier for me. (laughs) But I don't I don't necessarily go to like a straight up draft three that like I was mentioning the um, in an AERD patient, I might actually consider that, but in a, a straightforward polyp patient, I I will just do, um, you know, normal frontal sinusotomy. And if they were to recur quickly and topical medication wasn't helping, then in a revision surgery, I would consider um, doing a draft three. People also ask me about mega-antrostomies, which I think is interesting. I really don't do mega-antrostomies um, for eosinophilic CR uh, nasal polyp patients. The Where I would do megaantrosomies would be for the patients that we were recently talking about with the um, ciliary disorders. So maybe a CF patient, primary ciliary dyskinesia patient, because they actually have issues with their cilia moving the mucus out of the sinuses correctly, right? So if you can make that cavity kind of flush with the nasal floor, the rinses could get in there better. But patients who don't have those issues, their cilia should start working well again once you kind of open everything up and you ventilate the sinuses so they they shouldn't really have issues doing that once everything is healed and no longer inflamed so i don't i wouldn't i don't necessarily do mega just for your normal nasal polyp patient but would consider that in like a cystic fibrosis polyp patient or you know primary ciliary dyskinesia patient with polyps
0: patricia just for our listeners can you define yeah. mega antrostomy and define draft 3 Yes.
1: Yeah. So for a mega antrostomy, really all you're doing is you're removing the kind of the posterior two thirds of the inferior turbinate, and you are drilling that medial wall all the way down flush to the nasal floor. So I always leave the anterior one third of the turbinate there for you know empty nose purposes, and I do leave kind of like a little nub of the posterior um, inferior turbinate one to cauterize because we know a vessel comes in through there that can bleed and cause problems, but also kind of to leave it as a landmark as well. And then and then yeah, and then you just drill the. Floor down, so you're not um, you're not taking the whole turbinate. You're not cutting coming through the nasal lacrimal duct. You're really just bringing that wall all the way down flush with the floor. In a medial maxillectomy, that's a little different because you are coming all the way anteriorly, sort of um, flush with the anterior wall of the sinus. And in that case, the nasal lacrimal duct is removed. And then for a draft three, what's included in that is a superior septectomy and basically drilling out the intersinus septum and the floor of the frontal sinuses over to the orbit. So you want to go laterally enough that actually when you sort of push on um, the uh, nasal bone or kind of the medial portion of the eye, you're, you're to periosteum. So you'll see movement on the the sides laterally and that's when I know that I'm lateral enough and bringing it back to the skull base where your landmark is for that is you want to find the first olfactory neuron so you see that and that's as far back as you go and then anteriorly you want to drill the frontal beak out so you're basically making this nice wide open cavity that rinse can really get in there very nicely. So we so
2: after after surgery I feel like you know everything looks nice and we've opened everything up and then I I'm always worried about scarring and those those spaces you know kind of closing back off for you know for the middle turbinate I like to to pexy it you know with a stitch to the septum to kind of keep it medial do you have any tips or tricks? Do you do you leave a stent? Do you do you like the like the drug eluting stents, like the Propel, or do you like you know I've I've seen people leave like like plastic stents in the frontals, or what are your thoughts on that?
1: So I will say that I'm a hundred percent with you with suturing the middle turbinate. I've tried different ways, Nasapore, you know, other things like that, and I don't think there's anything like just suturing those turbinates like tight to the, the septum. So I, I'm completely with you on that. I think that really ke- like keeps the kind of ethmoid cavity open. I, you know, it's a good question that you bring up because with draft threes, some people will actually do mucosal um, grafting for the exposed bone from drilling. And um, th- it does heal so nicely because it kind of heals faster and, you know, quicker because you have that mucosal graft in there. I don't think that... Where do they get the graft? They will either take it from maybe part of the septum that they removed you can also if you were you know doing you can get it from the inferior turbinate you can get it from the nasal floor probably most people would just try to reuse that uh, septal uh, mucosa that they removed from the superior septectomy and you do. I, I forgot to mention too, with the uh, with the draft three, you do have to take the middle turbinates back to the skull base. So you could potentially use some middle turbinate mucosa as well. So so some people will do that, and it does heal very nicely. And like you were mentioning with the stents, um, then when you when you put the you can put like a silicone or silastic stent up there to hold the grafts, or just in general to help the healing process. So I do think that is quite important when you do a draft three, because you have exposed bone that is going to want to kind of scar down. So I actually have, you know, I've, I've done this elastic, I think works fine. I've actually recently been putting a propel up into the draft three cavity. And I I do think that that works well too. It's kind of eluding steroid at the same time. And it's, 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 so I I do think that that has been helpful. I don't um, actually do mucosal grafts because uh, I, I think that it does heal nicely, but I think it will, it will, also heal without a mucosal graft, but you do, you do have to debride these people frequently because the, the, the crusting of the exposed bone can get pretty bad. Now, in terms of if you're, if you didn't do a draft three for a, just a frontal sinusotomy, hopefully you didn't strip, you know, I, I'm guilty of sometimes stripping mucosa that I don't want to strip of course, but the goal is to not strip a mucosa circumferentially like you might have for a draft three. So if the AP diameter is pretty wide. A lot of the times you actually don't need anything in there. I do know there's people who will um, infuse maybe Kenalog into st- some Stamberger foam and kind of shoot that up there, which is nice. It kind of gives a just some topical stuff laying there. If, the, if this was a polyp case, and I do think that polyps, well, we know that polyps do tend to mostly recur in kind of the frontal recess ethmoid cavity area. I do um, like to put up a propel stent into the frontal side Sinus frontal recess area after a pro, after a polyp case to elude that steroid and keep kind of keep things open. I don't use them in the ethmoid cavity ever, so I never use the regular Propel stents because I think we do a good enough job opening the ethmoid cavity that we don't need necessarily like the quote unquote stenting effect of it and. The irrigation does tend to get into that ethmoid cavity pretty well, but where it doesn't always get is up into the frontal recess. So that's where, why I do like to put something up there for polyp cases.
0: And then what's your post-op management? You know, I assume that you do rinses the next day. Do you have them start their pulmonary court the next day? Do you wait that out? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the bottle is better than the neti pot? Do you have something different you tell your patients to use?
1: Yeah, so the... The, something that i do for polypatients, patients and this is um another question that people will ask about like a period perioperative steroid taper so in our literature it is and we kind of say it it's an option so there have been some studies to show that maybe it decreases blood loss by a little bit kind of decreases time in the or by a little bit it's definitely nothing like significant that it's like oh definitely do you know preoperative steroids or periop steroids but anecdotally i do feel like if i sort of start their steroid taper a couple of days before surgery they the surgery is a little bit less bloody that's less inflamed in there another thing is that people some people think that a lot of the times their patients that obviously have asthma or even if they don't have a diagnosis of asthma they have you know obviously upper airway issues so putting them on some steroids before surgery can actually be helpful for the anesthesia part of it and everything like that. So so I do start a steroid taper a couple of days before the surgery and have them continue it after the surgery. Now it's not, you don't have to do it preoperatively or perioperatively, you don't even um, necessarily have to do it postoperatively, but I think that most people do for polyp patients. I have them start their rinses the next day. And actually, if it was a bad polyp case, I'll have them add the cord to it starting the next day. And definitely, we know that debridements are Are necessary. They're a good thing. They help uh, you heal faster. They help the scarring to not happen. Like like I was saying before, there's few things that we can say we recommend. This, you know, saline rinses are one. Intranasal steroids are one. And debridements are one. So definitely bring them in a week or two later. Follow them closely um, until they're healed. Another question I get a lot of is, you know, about weaning the patients off budesonide. So we we don't have, you know, really Long-term data about being on topical steroids. So we know from the data that we have that we really don't think that it's bad to be on it for that long, and that's what I tell my patients. Like we really don't have anything to tell us that you can't be on this for a really long time without consequences. But you know, if you don't need to be on it, we wanna we wanna try to wean you off of it. So I, I usually give them about takes about three months for everything to look pretty healed. Obviously it depends on the patient, but I usually tell patients around three months. We know that it takes like 12 weeks for the mucosa to kind of heal itself and regenerate. I will see how they're doing at three months. And if they're really, everything looks really nice. I would probably say at that point, okay, let's do budesonide once a day, and then have you do just a regular saline rinse for the other one, then have them follow up in about three months and they're looking good, okay, now let's do it once every other day. And then until we can kind of get them off of it fully, but I always let them know like, hey, if you start to feel congested, or if you get a URI before your appointment with me, just go ahead and go back up to twice a day. And then we can, once you're feeling better, we can restart the process. So, um, you know, I have got been able to get patients off of budesonide polyp patients and they, they're fine and their polyps don't come back, but it's nice to always have that, um, when when you start to wean them off, you do always have the option of if things start to look, kind of look not so great again, you can add them back onto it. And that's why I do like to follow these patients because you obviously can pick up on endoscopy polyp changes, polypoid changes coming back before the patients might notice it, especially if the like nasal cavities are really open now. It would take you know things to get pretty bad for them to notice their smell is gone. They're congested. They can't breathe again. So I do like to follow them um, to get ahead of it. Another thing that, you know, you, you guys know about that we, um, that we have at our, one of the things we can do is a Sinuva implant. So what is, uh, what, Sinuva is, it's very, it's similar to Propel, except it has kind of three times the amount of mometasone that, and you leave it in the ethmoid cavity for three months. So this is, this is a nice thing to have for patients who maybe either don't, really stick to their regimen. So they, it's hard for them to do their rinses or maybe they're, they can't um, afford the bedesonide or something like that. So the, the Sinuva is good. What I have found is that it might not work as well if you're sticking it into a cavity that's just like full of polyps. So, you know, you, that's why I like to have the patients come back sooner because it tends to work better if it's when you start to sort of notice the polypoid changes come back. And this is actually something that's the intersect makes Sinuva. I have no financial relationship with them at all, but they did recently kind of say that it works a little bit better if you start use it before things get really bad in there. So that's an option that we have if like the topical stuff is not working or if patients just aren't, you know, sticking to the regimen. And um, Gopi, you asked about the best way to do it. This has been looked at. There's really no great difference between neti pot, Med, the lavage, anything like that. It's really just about, you know, a higher volume getting in there. So really whatever the patient can tolerate, I think that all those choices are fine. Another um, option we actually have for the pre-op and post-op cavity is you've probably heard about this thing called XHANCE, which is a it's an interesting tool where there is a part that goes in your mouth and then part that goes up your nose and you blow into it. And the point is that this closes your palate so that the uh, steroid gets further up into your um, sinus cavities than like your typical Flonase. And um, again, no, no financial relationship with them either. Just talking about some of the options that we have out there. And these are, these are all options that I would talk about with the patient, um, because I did want to touch, and I I know that we had mentioned talking a little bit about biologics. So what I will... What what we know about biologics so far, you know, there's, we're, they're, they're a very new thing that we've been trying The we as ENTs have only been able to prescribe the one that we can prescribe called Dupixent since June of last year. So it hasn't, you know, it has not been that long that we've even been able to prescribe these biologics. So the, there was a meeting with the NIH where everybody kind of met and they were like, okay, when do we use these? Because They are very expensive, right? So it's like 38 grand a year to be on this medication. So it's not something that you just kind of throw at anybody. So we feel that you really should fail all the other stuff that we, we have. So definitely surgery first. Of course, there are those patients that may not be surgical candidates ever, and they could potentially be someone who can start on Dupixent without having surgery. But you know, your typical patient, you want them to have had full surgery, meaning, you know, get give them a revision surgery if like there's ethmoid septations left or give them a revision surgery if they haven't had a draft three, you know, try all the topical stuff, whether it's uh, budesonide rinses, X hands you know, Stents with a steroid on them, so sort of try all that stuff. And um, if they are refractory to all of that, i I have seen dupixent work wonders. So, what you know, what it is, it's an IL four receptor medication that works on IL four and IL thirteen since they share a receptor. And that's what's um, really interesting about the biologics in general. What we're trying to figure out is how we can work sort of downstream before you know sort of polyp formation even happens. So we we used to just kind of just call sinusitis either poly- with or without polyps, right? But we know that it's so much more than that. We know there's TH1 inflammation where the cytokines tend to be IL2 and tumor necrosis factor beta and interferon and then TH2 which is polyp, which is the your IL 4, 5 and 13. And those Now we're trying to look at these um, cytokines and see if we can intervene at that part portion of development of polyps. So that's what Dupixent does. It works on these um, cytokines that uh, you see in Th two inflammation, and. I have, I have seen it work wonders. It doesn't work for everyone and there's still a lot of questions about it. So for instance, how long do you give it a try and until you decide it hasn't worked? Right now, we're kind of going off the asthma literature because in asthma, they've had biologics for a much longer time for you know, allergic um, asthma, atopic dermatitis. They've been dealing with biologics a lot longer than us, so we kind of look to them. They usually do about four months or 16 weeks and if there's been no change, okay, we don't think it's going to work work. But then there's also things like how long do you leave the patients on for it? And what we know so far is that once the patients come off, the polyps tend to come back. So is this a lifelong thing? So, you know, you have to talk about that with the patients. Like, if we start you on this, this is going to be a shot every two weeks for what we think will be the rest of your life. So that's a big deal. And then also, are there markers to decide like who's going to respond and who isn't? And kind of going back to one of your um, other questions, Ashley, was like, what things do you test for? So people will ask me, like, oh, do you test for um, IgE and do you test for like some of this eosinophilia, like these type of markers, if you're thinking about, oh, maybe they would be a biologic candidate in the future. And actually currently those things are not necessary to prescribe it. You really just have to show that, you know, they've they've tried other things, they failed, and that this is severely affecting their quality of life and that you have, you know, you have polyps on endoscopy. So, you know, quality of life would be smell loss and you know, that kind of thing. So you don't need to actually check those things to go on dupixin. So I I don't usually uh, check those early on, but if they were to see allergy or immunology, they might check them. So, you know, Dupixent is, I ha, like I was saying, I have seen it do amazing things, but there's still like a lot that we don't know about it. But it is something that we should know about as, you know, ENTs treating polyps because there are those patients that will benefit from it. Is there
2: um, anything else that you would want to leave our listeners with? Did we, any other topics that we didn't, that we didn't hit you think that are big um, take-home points? I think
1: just, you know, main take-home point with patients is just that they're kind of your patient forever and they're all different. You know, it's kind of individualized treatments. It's a lot of like, what do you think or how are you feeling or what do you want to try next? And, you know, it can't just be here, let's give you this and like, let me know if it doesn't work. You know, they, these are patients that you are going to be, should be at least um, kind of seen forever to make sure that they're doing okay and trying new things. So there's not just kind of a one and done thing. So that would kind of be my last uh, take home point is just like build that relationship and you guys will figure out a way together to get them feeling at least better than they did when they walked in. Oh, and I wanted to ask you, yeah. do you sit or stand? Oh, I, I stand. I'm a, that's actually, that's a great question. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah. I'm too jittery to be able to like sit down. I need to like walk around and move my pedals around. Do you sit, Ash?
2: No, um, you know, Marple and Ryan they stood there they stand they are still around, and so that's why I, so I did my training here at UC, okay. UC south so so they taught me how to stand, but batra yeah. Pete Batra was here for a little while, mm-hmm. and he sit, but he's tall, and so i've I've done it I've done it both ways, but his argument was that, you know, from a like a posture and yeah. you know energy standpoint that it's you should sit when you can because, yeah. you know, these long cases or whatever. But so I've, I have done it both ways. But now in my practice, I stand just because
0: that was how I yeah. did it the most. You know, it's interesting um, because endoscopic so so ear surgeons in Italy, like Marciano, those guys stand. Yeah, ear surgery. So you're yeah. right. It's it's. it oh, so, was interesting. Yeah, cool. yeah. Well, I was doing a patchless case
2: the other day where I was going back and forth between the nose and the ear, and so I was standing because I had started the case standing, and I was so I was in the ear standing, and I had that thought. I was like, I wonder if I would enjoy doing my ear surgery yeah. standing. Well, we used to do ear right. tubes standing up at Jeff. Ear tubes, just tubes, because yeah. it was you know that's how I do mine. Yeah, I'd leave them on the bed, and then I stand. I sit for all of them now.
1: <laughs> so I can, so I can keep, keep it going. going. I love yeah. it. I love it. I gotta save those minutes. I've actually, like, I, anytime I need to do tubes anymore, I've I use the endoscope now. I like have. I really? like to put totally. I love it. Isn't it so ridiculous? Like when you're just doing the same thing. I'm totally that like surgeon now. That's like I don't know how to use a microscope anymore. I, like I'm scared. I'm gonna use like I hold this all day, so I'm gonna do everything yeah. with your it. left hand, hand. is just yeah. a scope now. I yeah. totally do tubes with uh, my the endoscope
2: now. In the future, There will be like an attachment for you know. It'll just be like a like a prosthesis.
1: Yeah, you. Yes. <laughs> just kind of like hook on. thats <laughs> gonna be like a... exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it is interesting. When I was doing my fellowship interviews, you're. You're right, like I when we would go into the OR and some, I some people would be sitting, some would standing. It seems to be that some uh, more of the like old school um, people tend to were sitting, and I don't know. I feel like that has recently changed. But you're right, it was. I think that I think also maybe the cases used to be a lot longer. Like we have such like nice tools now too. Like we even have uh, like obviously the microdebreeder is nice, but you even have you attach a, a burr to the microdebreeder and you can mm-hmm. like do things really fast. So I think our cases are not as long now. And then it's a little bit easier to come in and out if you have a resident and stuff. But yeah, it is interesting. But I I definitely stand. Awesome.
2: And if listeners want to um, learn more about you or reach out to yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, are
1: you any social media outlets? Or- yeah. yeah. Yeah, please. I have, um, you can directly contact me. My email is patricia.loftus at ucsf.edu. I would love to chat. We're also, for any women ENTs out there, Gopi knows she's part of the Women in Rhinology. I wanted to put a plug in for that. I mean, anybody can join the Women in Rhinology, men too, but it does tend to be a nice place for women, um, generalists and rhinologists, especially early in practice, to join. So, if you are interested in that, please reach out to me as
0: well. Yeah, that's how I reconnected with you. I was yeah. like, Women in Rhinology, Patricia Lopez. I was like, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, I was like, Look at her. Yeah. She's she's awesome. Because I think the last time our interaction was, you know, I was the PGY2 and you were the yes, student. So, totally. And so look- great to see your name. Look where we are now, Gopi. Oh, yeah. Talking about pileups <laughs> exactly. on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so it's so perfect.
1: It really is. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Awesome. Thank you again, everyone. This was really
2: great. Thank you for being. Yeah. Uh, thanks. This is uh, this is awesome. And for for listeners, um, we'd love to hear your feedback. Let us know what you thought. We're on social media on Twitter and Instagram. Handles are at underscore backtable ent. It's a wrap. We'll see you next time.